This edition of the Author Archive podcast features the actress Harriet Walter. She was born in 1950, and when she entered the profession as a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company, she has been in work solidly ever since. I mean, recently she's been in Killing Eve, she's been in Succession, and uh, that comedy drama on BBC One, This Is Going To Hurt. Well, in 2003, she produced a book, Thoughts on Acting, called Other People's Shoes. So, Harriet, thoughts on acting. My first thought, is it a craft or is it an art? Which is it? I don't know. That sounds snobby and that's not meant to be because, in fact, it doesn't work as easily as that. Those lines have been defined. If you do classical acting, you're more serious. You know, and those things aren't true, actually. I've met some very queeny soap stars and some very down-to-earth <laughs> Shakespeareans, but you know what I mean? It's basically a whole lot... Your whole life goes into a classical role. Um, so if you've got any artistry in you or any creative... I mean, you have to be inspired and creative and imaginative, so in that way it's an art. But you're not initiating and you're not... You're not. You're. You're an interpreter. Yes, because you say in in this book at one point you write. You sat down to write the play, you know, the best play anybody has ever <laughs> written. And what happened? Nothing. I realised I couldn't write plays. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> I suppose I think playwriting is one of the hardest forms of writing, ever, because you've got to not just you're not just writing, you're writing six dimensionally, aren't you? You're not just writing something that's an intercourse between you and a reader. You're standing a load of people's lives up to be viewed and you've got to imagine them all and you've got to give them life now that's can't do that I'd rather be up there doing it I think that was part of why I didn't carry on but um, and if I have any creativity it doesn't go in that direction I don't think up stories I don't you know um, if I have creativity it's in my imaginative connection with other people and that's the best best use of it is to act really there's a lot of talk of directors in here and the shortcomings that some of them bring to their particular task. Could you have been one of those? Well, I'm beginning to think a bit more because I liked, I enjoyed the process of the book and I've enjoyed the responses to the book. Um, and people have said, you know, you could, you've got a lot to impart, you could teach. Now, I think teaching and directing are very different things. I wouldn't mind teaching. I don't know about directing. But... Um, Life's too busy anyway, so I sort of rule out the things that aren't burning on my doorstep, and director isn't burning on my doorstep. And the reason I give so much time to them is that we are willy-nilly in their hands. You can't really pull it off if you've got an obstructive director, and you can't do your very, very best if you haven't got a helpful director. So, and a brilliant director can push you way beyond what you thought you could do. So they're key people in our lives and I had you know Simon Callow wrote this book um, mm. being an actor which is like almost I would say the you know the book to read about acting until mine came along <laughs> but, uh, no but I mean he does a sort of quite a hefty diatribe about directors which was the which was the part of the book which got most talked about in reviews and most discussed in fact it's not a large proportion of the book but it it was he lambed into them, and I was sort of very timid by in in by comparison with him in what I've said about directors. I think I've been awfully tiptoey around the subject. I haven't named anyone I disapprove of, and 
I've only named people I like, so I'm a bit, um, you know. But, but, but you do say what, what a director is expected to bring. I mean, there's a great list of things you have to have to be a good director, and you think, goodness me, I mean, can you go to be trained, or do you just pop well, out of the womb with this? This is what, so that's really one of the things I talk about, about whether directors are born or made, and um, I think that probably, you know, you can certainly make a director out of certain component parts, and, um, and I've never met a director who can do all those things I listed, obviously, um, um, but you can... You can have good com combinations if your strong points m match up to their strong point or, or sort of yin and yang with their strong points, then you can probably do good work together. But there is no, well, there wasn't until very recently, until the early 90s, there was nowhere directors actually trained. It was an amateur gift, you know, and all these mm. sort of gentlemen amateurs who turned up, for, you know, that's how the job grew up, from the producers of the old school to the actor managers to, you know, suddenly in this century, last century, um, director became this important job, which it had never been before. And they became incredibly powerful and, and you know, and they are the few people who, who don't need to produce a certificate saying, I've got a right to push people around on the stage. So, um, if a certain sort of person is, is drawn to being a director, the, the acting thing, I was, I was talking to a famous comedian not long ago who's taken to acting, and I said, is it difficult? He said, no, 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 it's not difficult at all. Oh, damn it, you should have kept <laughs> no, up. <laughs> but looking at the way you go about it, it seems, you know, you can understand the depth of it and what goes on. But what sort of person wants to become an actor? When there's a load of you together, and there's a, there's a very entertaining little bit about lots of actors together, mm. but what do you have in common? Terror. <laughs> um, most actors I know are terrified of people. That is absolutely true. Well, uh, and I touch on that in the book, that mm. uh, most actors are timid, shy, insecure. And it's almost as though they go into acting to face their demons and work through them. Not in, not in absolute therapeutic terms. But Is that sort of like all psychiatrists are potty, you know, that so kind that's of thing? Slightly. I mean, certainly, and comedians we all know as well, oh, on the verge of a nervous breakdown <laughs> most of the time. Um, in fact, it works the other way, that sort of frightfully serious actors you meet, or sort of he real heavyweights, when you get them off scene, they're incredibly funny. You know, so you get real clowns among the series actors and real tragedians in the com comics. So uh, in a way, people, I don't know, I do say in one paragraph, it takes one paragraph to say it, but, but it doesn't truly counterweight how it should, um, the rest of the book, is that if you find it easy, don't play with it. You know, there are actors who just instinctively can get up there, no problems, and do it. So don't tamper with that if you're one of those people. Um, and, and most of what I write about is an analysis of what goes on rather than a way to do it. You know, it's not used yes. as a handbook. So Yeah, but there are the invitations to... Yes, uh, there are invitations to play which are really designed... I don't know whether I actually expect people to get up in their living room and try them out, but, um, but they are ways of trying to link what we do professionally with just being a kind of professional form of what everybody does anyway. Yeah. Like I, I talk about people trying on clothes in a shop and, we, we, and we, how we kind of become a different person when we sort of put a hat on. You see people in Selfridges sort of going, you know, yes. in the, in the, <laughs> the mirror. And, and I just talk about 
those sort of connections where a lot of people are acting a lot of the time anyway, to try and get them to understand what we're doing just a bit more of, more often. There's a human bit where you, you say uh, that some actors, if you've been used to playing a king or a queen, when you get into real life, you, <laughs> you kind of forget that you're not. You very, know. very difficult. So at one. a party, the ones who play the big parts <laughs> tend to, to hold the limelight, and if you're just a sword carrier... Absolutely. It's a really tricky one, that, because it, it's, it actually teaches you to be a real Democrat, because in one play someone will be playing a maid, in the next play they might be playing the heroine. So that's the merciful thing about the, the job as it is now because it's not so structured as it used to be. It's a, it's a good thing, it's a, a virtue that's come out of the fact that it's all been rather deregulated, or even further deregulated than before. There used to be you always played this line of parts, you were the king person, or you were the fool person, or you were the heroine, and now we're much more mixed up and able to move between the two or three. Um, so, but you do get people who, if they have been playing that kind of part for a long time, and I talk about different act types of actor. There are types of actor who, who create a persona which they never change, which they move about in the world in, <laughs> yes. which could be a complete construct and nothing, you know, very little to do with what they actually are and everything to do with what they'd like to be seen as. And that becomes so uh, encrusted about them that it's inseparable from them. And, and, they, and that comes up back cliche question of which is you and which is the part you know there are actors like that and if they've been playing noblemen and kings and dukes and lords and barons and generals all their life then I suppose they get in the habit of treating people that way. What are you in the habit of? What do you get most of? Well you see I don't I've got these sort of two extremes I've got one where I'm an absolute lark and a fool and get pushed about and joked and teased and another one where I'm rather sort of awe-inspiring and, you know, I've played a Shakespeare heroine and, you know, I'm at the moment playing Lady Macbeth and, you know, people afterwards approach, approach you with slight caution as if you're going to be, um, you know, rather commanding and frightening and, you know, so... so yeah, you see, have those Lady, Mac sides. Lady Macbeth, kind of terrifying. Mm. But there's a very comforting bit in here. I don't know what you were playing, but you, you meet some people after the show and they say, oh, you were wonderful, of course. You know, you were great. And they say, well, didn't the woman in the red dress who oh, got yes. up, uh, didn't, didn't she ruin it for you? So you're in there being Lady Macbeth, and you're noticing us on the third row with a packet of Walker's cheese and onion. And how? Because what we have on stage is heightened sensibilities. I mean, we can hear a gnat um, six rooms away, because that's how tuned up you are when you're on stage. And... Uh, the concentration that you see is our concentration to rule out everything that you know mm. is in our eye line, uh, or to try to try to avoid looking at. It. It's a bit like driving a car and not being distracted, really. Um, but it doesn't mean you can't see it or hear it if it gets um, troublesome. In fact, Lady Macbeth has recently swung round on some school children and told them to shut up. She didn't. She did. And if I'd been then, I'd, I'd have been scared. I was far more scared, but they don't know that. I mean, and I would think they would be very surprised to know that this person who seems to be behind a screen almost, mm. in another world, kind of in, in a kind of bubble, that they should actually turn around and be aware of little me in the audience. You know, that might have given them a shock. I hope it did. <laughs> but is there, is there more and more now the feeling that 
because you see actors mainly on TV in the little box or on the big screen, that somehow when you see one in real life, you don't kind of twig that this is a real person. Yeah. You mean when they're performing on yes. stage or when they're walking through the high street? No, when they're performing on yeah, stage. Yeah, well, I think that really... I mean, people have said that, and I can only imagine that's true. I mean, I remember performing in America at one point, and, and uh, whenever I was on stage, not at, on my own, just doing something like hiding a gun or, you know, whatever it happened to be, um, if there was nobody else on stage and I wasn't talking, they assumed they could talk, and it was a break, you know. It's like an interval, and um, so that, and it was a sort of war of attrition where I'm not going to start talking until you shut up, and they weren't going to sh- stop talking until I'd started. So anyway, and, and afterwards somebody spoke to them about it, and they were very sweet and totally bewildered and yeah. lacking in malice. They just simply hadn't realised. You mean, you mean she was still playing up there, you know, or, or and then one and. and and somebody said on the press night when some people walked out, didn't you enjoy it? They said, sure we did, we've got to catch up. And I said, well, I don't think the, audi- the cast will realise you enjoyed it if they can see you walking out, you know. And they said, oh, you mean they can see us? So it's just this thing of if we can see you, you can see us. If we can hear you, you can hear us. You know, that equation doesn't seem to register to people who are mostly watching performers on t- TV and film. I think you're right. And that's why I like playing in the round. At the, at the moment, we're sort of on three quarters in a sort of intimate space because I think a proscenium arch sort of carries on that illusion that we're over there yes. in another world. Whereas if you're actually, you know, I've had to kick people's coats aside because they're on the stage where we've got to do something quite dangerous, like a sword fight, you know. And I mean, that is real life intruding. I mean, I can't help it. I have had to do it. And that must be like... Um, somebody leaping out of the screen, I suppose, to them. <laughs> when you're on the screen, it does seem, you say pride and prejudice, I think you describe it as being cushy. Sense and sensibility. Sense, of, yes. sense and sensibility. Yes, I mean, film jobs are cushy to, to actors like me. Um, it's a lovely... Should, is, it, is it wise to say that? Because they might think, oh, if it's, if it's cushy, you know. Well, no, I mean the life around the work. I don't mean that... I, I, I think... You can go on arguing forever which is harder, film or theatre, you know. It depends on the part, the demands of the role, blah, blah, blah. You know, you need to be extremely good to be good at any of them, you know, it's not easier. But um, but I meant the life around it, you know, you get driven to work, you get fed well, you get a space of your own to change it, you get beautiful clothes to wear. You know, there's masses, masses, masses more money spent on a film, I mean, inconceivably much more. Um, and so, and that goes in some ways to the sort of looking after the actors and making your life relatively easy. It's tedious and boring and cold and all sorts of things like that, but there are some creature comforts that are laid on which you wouldn't dream of in the theatre. There's a nice little thing here, sort of little test, crying. Yeah. Now, you say that there are some people who can just do it. Think of a dead puppy in there. And they're crying yeah. immediately. Or they bite inside a... Yeah, or tweak a nose hair or whatever it is people do. Oh, yeah, is that what they do? <laughs> I've heard that one too. And ah. it works. <laughs> but but you, don't, you, don't, you say you don't do tears that Well, easily. I find it very hard. I have to sort of... 
I mean, without sounding pretentious, I have to find it from some, some real source. You know, I'm, in that sense, when you say, is it an art or a craft, you know, some people are more technically able than others. I've acquired technique over the years, but um, I'm quite a guarded person emotionally, and it takes a lot to make me cry in public. Do you know, and there are all sorts of guards in my brain that mm. say, don't cry in public. And you have to fight through those. And um, where you have a society which is, which is easier with its tears, you know, like, I don't know, Russian movies where people cry a lot, or America, like Hollywood, is awash with tears most of the time, <laughs> you know, when they're happy, when they're sad. Um, and, and I actually advocate restraint anyway. I mean, that might be just because I find, I do, you know, I have to, most parts I play, I've at some point got to cry, but I can't guarantee they'll come on cue where the writer says they've got to come. Uh, and, on, and on screen, you know, where all sorts of um, obstacles can crop up, like an aeroplane goes ahead or, you know, a dog starts barking or a phone goes off or a drill starts up in the street and you have to cut, you know, endlessly retaking for reasons like that. Um, I, I, I marvel at that ability to just sort of reproduce the emotion each time and I think people do underestimate that ability, not particularly with tears, but the whole, the focusing, the ability to focus with all those distractions I think is much more needed in film than, than on stage. So I, I would say that's the clever thing about film, really. One of the things that you talk about which is very revealing is the ability to come at it afresh every night, to keep redoing it, because that's the thing that we, the, you know, the, the, um, the outsiders, yeah. the, the lay people, find the difficult one. I was in the theatre last week and I saw these people and I thought, God, you've been doing this every yeah. night since October. I mean, you're going to be on stage tonight, aren't you? Yeah. Are you looking forward to it? I usually don't look forward to it, but I, as soon as I hit the deck, I, I love it. It's like we sit there in the dressing room moaning and say, oh God, where am I going to get the energy from? And then you go on, ding. <laughs> I mean, I do anyway, that's what happens to me. Occasionally I absolutely hate it, but I'm never bored. Never, ever bored. Not by Lady Macbeth. But if I mean, you've got that, a... That's the thing. I mean, there are people in our play who've been doing it since September. Uh, rehearsing since September, performing since November, and it's now April, May, May. And you cannot keep being interested in saying the Queen, my Lord, is dead. You can't. Nobody could expect anybody to be. And I don't know, I try and touch on that in the book, try and sort of, my advice is simply not to expect too much when you get the part and not be conned by directors who say it's a lovely little part and you know you'll have masses you know there's so rich and you know you've got to you know your aunt's dead and you know whatever it is and gives you a whole backstory basically you know your boredom threshold will be as as large as the part is I would say and um, there's no there's no comfort for those people except to do something exciting during the day and take the money and hope for a bigger part next time but from where you sit do you think you're, there's a very idealistic girl comes out in the early yes, parts definitely. of this? Yes, definitely. Still a bit of her there. Yeah. Is there? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Battered and beaten, but still hopeful. I mean, the, the, um, I love that bit about going to South Africa with the Mara Assad. You're playing Charlotte Corday, which you know, I think, oh, great, 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 great. But down the line, can you still keep that fire? Can you still kind of keep the the thought that you're making a difference? 
Yes, and I tell you, one gets, that's another thing about the theatre, you get much more feedback. You know, you go out into the street or you get a letter next day from a child or from a grown-up or a child, you know, either. I've had lots of letters from young people, which, I, which move me more simply because we're barraged all the time with the idea that, you know, theatre isn't sexy and, you know, it's only middle-aged old, old fogies and middle-class people who go to the theatre, you know. So every time I get a letter from a young person saying, I've never seen anything like it, I'm never going to forget it, it's absolutely wonderful and I now want to be an actor or something. Uh, I think that's great, and that's because they got something absolutely immediate that night from something that isn't easy to describe, and that's that's where it falls down in present times because it can't just be locked into a sound bite or packaged or sold as a, you know, it's something that has to be experienced, and unless you get through the door and experience it, and unless you happen to go to a good show, because let's face it, you can go to very bad theatre and very boring theatre um, and that will put you off for life just as much but you, I mean I do a film and I, you know, I might hear a year later that somebody happened to see it but do, do a play and you're getting feedback every day and you're getting this rapt silence this, or this laughter or this you know so you know my horizons have got smaller I used to think I'd change the whole society <laughs> Um, but now, if you reach a few individuals a night, I think that's that's okay. That's certainly worth doing. Where does the ego of Harriet Walters sit with all of this? Because you say, yeah. for you, the worst thing of the evening, or the thing you don't like, is the curtain call at yeah. the end. You see, you say you, you <laughs> yes. don't particularly want to be a director much. And there's a sense that you love being up there. You say, mm. you know, the buzz. Mm. So, do you like a bit of... Oh. I've got an ego, but I don't think it's sort of, I don't think it's as big as some people. You know, I'm learning over the years that it's not quite, I mean, I'd rather be, I don't, I'd like to be still part of the ordinary world, if you see what I mean. I don't, I don't really, I wouldn't really enjoy being very, very famous or a star because I think you get out of touch. Um, and I think your life's diminished in certain ways. It may, you may get lots of, freebies and perks but you you know I think it's quite diminished and I think my idea of hell would be to be followed by cameras or uh, you know peered at in the street you know I'd hate that but my, my, my ego in terms of my pr professional pride is pretty big you know and I'm quite competitive with myself and with you know am I doing it as well as I can and all that stuff so I've got quite a big ego in that direction and I want to be noticed, I want to be listened to, I think I've got something to say, and I want to communicate. I hate being misunderstood, you know, so I think those are the areas where my ego um, operates. And the curtain call is just this sort of, I think there's a sort of oversensitivity where you think, oh, they're probably hating me, they feel they've got to clap, and oh, I, I don't want to look as though I think I think I'm wonderful and that they're clapping me because I'm wonderful. I want to look as though I know that some of you don't think I'm very good, but you're clapping anyway, and I realise that. But anyway, thank you for coming. Yeah. It's difficult to communicate that with one glance, isn't well, it? Well, you know, <laughs> that's what's going on. You'd better read the book then to fully understand. The paperback is now out. It's called Other People's Shoes, The Thoughts of Harriet Walter. Thank you. Thank you. Great. 
I'm David Freeman, and Harriet Walter was talking to me when her book, Other People's Shoes, was first published in September 2003. But it's still available.